I even take care when it's trees that I quote unquote don't like, like the calorie pear, which is invasive. But you know, if I'm pruning that tree, I take just as much care as possible. You're listening to Our Shared Field, where we bring artists into conversation with people from outside of the arts. I'm your host, Austin Camille. Welcome to part two of the conversation we began last week with artist Aviva Romani. Aviva, an ecological artist, tends to work at the scale of entire forests. Today, I sit down with Marcus Ferreira, a lawyer and urban tree tender based in Philadelphia. While Marcus is thinking about the urban greening of Philadelphia as a whole, he primarily works in the several block radius of the South Street West neighborhood, always with a pair of pruners in his pocket to care for the trees he walks by every single day. My name is Marcus Ferreira. I work in a day job capacity as an attorney for a law firm. For my passion, what I do is work within the community and then also um, throughout the city on urban greening and bicycle and pedestrian friendly projects. Uh, in my tree tending capacity, I do a lot of work just planting trees and then tending trees within my own neighborhood. On top of this, Marcus is also the co-chair of the Tree Tender Committee for the Pennsylvania Horticultural Society. He also leads his neighborhood tree tender group, he's the chair of the South Street West Business Association, and he's also on numerous neighborhood zoning boards and involved in a number of neighborhood-specific projects. I asked Marcus about how he manages all of this alongside his day job of being a lawyer and how the two things fit together for him. So basically, I've always been interested in environmental issues. Uh, I can credit my sister and my mother for that. And that's growing up in southeastern Massachusetts. I used to play in a a watershed, uh, like a a small river, a tributary to the the Cushionet River. And when I was about seven years old, and my sister and I would go there, collect hermit crab shells. And found out one day that the that we could no longer go down there because of PCB pollution. This was a half block from my house. It was just devastating. From that point on, my, my sister was eight years older than me and my mom told me about all this and I was in elementary school at the time. Mm. I ended up bouncing around. Um, my, my biological father and my mom split up uh, and my mom remarried and I ended up going to the Marshall Islands with my stepdad. I was in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you realize, wow, we're on this boomerang-shaped island in the middle of nowhere, Mm. eight miles long, a quarter to a half mile wide at at its fattest, maybe three feet above sea level. And you realize just, wow, how precarious your position there in the world is. Mm. In Massachusetts and in the Marshalls, I had a positive experience in that I really enjoyed just being able to walk everywhere. And then we ended up moving to southern New Jersey, a town called Medford, just outside of Philadelphia. And it was an upper middle class uh, community. By most people's standards, really nice, great schools, green, a lot of trees, Tree City, USA. Mm. Um, But it wasn't walkable. We were on a road that was 50 miles an hour. um, And I think that was one of the first times I felt unhappy. And then eventually went to college. I went to Rutgers in New Brunswick and felt happy again. And I 
thought about it. And part of it was this ability to finally walk around again. And it was weird because it was sort of an awakening. And I realized, wow, there was something about Medford that I didn't like. But as a teenager, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Mm-hmm. And that was that was it. Um, in college, I ended up double majoring in history and political science. Mm-hmm. And then what do you do with those two de- uh, degrees? I went to law school. <laughs> <laughs> so it just kind of rolled for me. and. Yeah. So going through that history, I just didn't, I was kind of doing my thing in my 20s and then ended up buying a house in 2004. And it's the house I currently reside in. It's on South Street West. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of the neighborhood had been basically decimated with the combined effects of redlining. And there was the threat of the Crosstown Expressway which caused a lot of, basically they were going to take a highway and build it right through South Street and eliminate mm-hmm. the entire thing. So a lot of people just picked up and left. And then the, the devastation was incredible. So when I moved here in 2004, there were um, eight empty lots or holes in the ground as I mm-hmm. moved in. Um, now there are zero on the block. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds so different from from what I envisioned. Because, you know, I mean, it's also the neighborhood that I live in right now. And that wasn't even that long ago. Exactly. A lot has changed. You know, one thing I I noticed when I moved in is there was a lot of nice mature street trees. Um, So it felt like this could be a a great uh, main street type of situation. Mm -hmm. I felt like, hey, I need to put put my elbows to work here, you know, uh, what do they call it? Sweat equity. (laughs) Put some sweat equity into the neighborhood. I tend to think of urbanism as incremental change through time. So a a city is living and breathing, and then you can effectively change or or work to change a neighborhood in positive ways while respecting its history and not erasing what has been there. And that's what I've endeavored to do, just doing it incrementally. In 2013, I, I became a tree tender, and then I really went off on that. <laughs> uh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of moving parts, and that kind of brings me into some of the work that you're doing as a tree tender as well. Transitioning into that work, how did you begin to learn so much about you know the different types of trees that you work with? Um, how you actually go about pruning a tree? I just I remembered um, when I moved to Philly, and I was on Spruce Street. There, it was a very uh, green, uh, had, had a nice canopy and, yeah. and those neighborhoods had it. And then when I moved to South street, it was patchy. Mm-hmm. Um, we had some, and then the further South away from center city, we would go, um, you tend to find that it, as you get into neighborhoods that are more blue collar, um, there's less tree coverage. So if you go into deeper South Philly, there's, um, entire blocks where there were no trees mm-hmm. and, I realized, wow, we really need to step it up at least in the areas I can control. And so we we started putting in some new trees where some had failed. And we put in, we went down to Home Depot and bought some red buds. And mm-hmm. and now none of those are still there. Um, they were all inappropriate for a commercial corridor. They're beautiful trees for three weeks out of the year, but they never get quite tall enough to get over delivery vans. Mm-hmm. Which is a funny thing to have to think about when you're planting a tree. <laughs> you Correct. know, it's like there are very specific parameters. Right. On South Street, we're only working with 12 feet of sidewalk from the facade to the curb. Mm-hmm. 
And then we have fairly heavy pedestrian traffic and we're working with uh, the need to put in intersperse cafe seating, bike racks, parking kiosks, the, the full gamut. Um, <laughs> so this is something that I learned just informally planting and then seeing the scars of the, the torn limbs and you realize, oh, this is because of constant conflict with delivery vans. And so I, I got... I think I graduated in 2012, and then shortly thereafter, I took the PHS tree, tree tender class, and I just fell in love with the whole program. And I realized, wow, you know, the things that they taught me, plus my own limited experiential knowledge at the time, I was able to take the two and then really run with it. And and I, so I started reading about um, urban forestry. And, and talking to other people who are interested in it. And then for me, I felt like I, in some ways, had more knowledge because I'm on, like a lot of tree people, they live in the more wooded sections of the city um, mm. where I'm living in a, a fairly intensively uh, urban part of the city. Then, and then also, too, been thinking more deeply about, okay, well, we want canopy and what we need to have is the cathedral arch that crosses full over the street once the trees reach maturity. Um, we need trees that are fairly fast growers because the longer they kind of interlope in this longer, lower strata where there's conflict of teenagers, uh, teenage boys usually, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and then the delivery vans. So that I like to try to pick trees that sort of get to be mid-sized. Just a quick side note, because I'll refer to it a few times later on in this conversation. When I'd originally reached out to Marcus about being interviewed, he suggested we take a walk down South Street together so he could give me a tour of the trees that he's talking about. So here we are on South Street West of Broad Street, and we're stopping by a honey locust that's planted in front of an architectural firm. And we planted this one maybe a year and a half ago. You can hear the sounds of the, the restaurant row here. We're at the corner of 16th and South, and here I'm trying to create uh, a, a nice arch that doesn't currently exist. We're mid-block in the 1600 block. There's Zelkovas, honey locusts, uh, native oaks, especially native oaks, which are keystone species. They host hundreds of types of uh, Lepidoptera, which are like the, the, the caterpillars. His familiarity with every single tree on the street is incredible. Not only this, but he can envision what it will look like here 30, 40, 50 years down the road. What kinds of trees do you um, prefer working with then? I tend to go with native trees. Uh, one of my big influences is uh, Professor Doug Tallamy uh, from University of Delaware, where he basically encouraged us to, uh, as uh, stewards of the environment to think not just in terms of human ecological services, which are usually quantified as stormwater interceptions, shade, um, the ability to make people happy, um, but also in terms of, hey, um, will this host insects? Will that will in turn feed the birds mm. and and create that wheel of life even here in the, the heart of the city? Mm -hmm. And so I tend to uh, favor the natives to, to the mid-Atlantic. Um, 
with a slight bias to trees that are slightly uh, further south or, or have their ranges. So I, earlier I m- mentioned willow oak. That's a good southern tree that goes as high as Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, where I'm now moving away from planting trees such as sugar maples, where their lowest uh, ge- geographical reaches are uh, southeastern Pennsylvania. Mm, and is that specifically due to climate change? Like you're Correct. Okay, that's what I figured. Yeah, by the time these uh, trees are 30 years old, we want to make sure that it's in the right climate for them. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of things that we think about, um, whether or not they're utility wires. If they're utility wires and we go with those, hey, that's a great opportunity for a redbud or the hawthorn, a serviceberry, or, or maybe even an American hornbeam. I love that you are able to walk down the street that you live on, essentially, and um, can see and be a part of all these changes taking place. I'm curious to know, have you, have you seen more insects, more birds, anything like that? Like, have you, have you been able to chart those changes yet in South Street? Is there enough density yet or not quite? I think it's going to be more of a process. Um, and then a lot of the trees that we've been planting are not the superstars in terms of the um, the insect attractors. Um, I would love to plant more oaks. Um, we just don't have space for it. Mm-hmm. And oaks are considered the keystone or one of the keystone species mm-hmm. um, where on one white oak specimen, I believe 540 types of Lepidoptera. Um, and then each one of those has birds that prey on them and then mm-hmm. other interactions. And so, and then where a honey locust is sort of a middle tier uh, host species. Um, but with that said, it's better than a ginkgo, which only hosts five uh, species of Lepidoptera, mm-hmm. at least in this area where ginkgos are wonderful. Uh, like they're urban tolerant, they're tough. But in East Asia, they play the vital role in their ecosystem. Over here, they, they're they almost non-contributing other than mm. a place for birds to perch. And so, you know, in terms of, hey, we're in the Anthropocene where we're bird declines since 1970 uh, have been measured at something like 40% in mm. continental U.S. An oak costs roughly $120 a plant and mm-hmm. a ginkgo costs roughly $120 a plant. Which one is makes more sense in terms of best bang for the dollar to restore our planet? It's the oak here. Yeah, yeah. The reason why a lot of non-natives were introduced into cities was because in the 1800s, before screens were invented, people were complaining about the trees in front because they were attracting the bugs and the bugs were going into the houses. They were specifically preferred, these non-natives, because they were not interacting with the ecosystem. They were not attracting the bugs and therefore the bugs were not going to the house. Oh, that's so um, interesting in terms of priorities. <laughs> right. And then also mm-hmm. too, because the bugs don't eat them, they tend to be a little bit more resilient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, you know, a, a question of maintenance. Yes. And and so one of the things is I've noticed that there's a definite preference for trees that are more columnar in form, uh, mm-hmm. whether or not they're native or non-native. And I feel that because the city has a very limited budget, they don't have enough money to prune these trees every two years or three years, as would be an ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they do is they err on the side of, well, let's have a pick trees with a narrower branch habitat. But then when you do that, you don't get that canopy. 
But also, we do not have um, street tree protection ordinances that have teeth like New York does, where developers will have to pay a fee if that tree is uh, significantly damaged mm. or, or killed. In Philadelphia, there's no penalty for removing a tree unless it's of a, um, a certain s- series of native species and something uh, like 21 or 22 uh, inches or more. So, and almost none of our trees are that big. Mm-hmm. So basically, a, a developer can just shrug and say, well, we'll plant a, you know, a, an infant tree here, a sapling to replace, quote unquote, um, this this." this semi-mature tree that we're going to knock down just because we don't want to deal with it during construction. Mm -hmm. You know, on the neighborhood level, we're trying to do it. We're trying to communicate with other tree tender leaders. Um, So I'm on the steering committee and we talk about all these things and Mm -hmm. it's different community uh, tree heads like myself throughout the city. We all convene quarterly and, and, and talk about the issues and the frustration where a major new development goes up and there's supposed to be a, a new tree every 30 linear feet, but somehow it doesn't happen. And then the initial thought is, well, the G blame the developer. Then we talk to the developer and the developer says, no, the city and the utility company said that there was no room for us to put the trees. Hmm. And how is so that it's possible? Not, it's not necessarily a part of the initial conversation. You know, where are the utilities going? Where's the building going? Where are the trees going? Like it should be in that initial conversation. Right. It's just frustrating because it's this constant battle where we're planting, um, but it's not enough. Um, what we have to do is retain the ones that we have. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the notion of being a tree tender um, and not just like a tree planter is really um, nice. exciting to me because it's true. It's it's about maintaining what you have, thinking of it in terms of an ecosystem. Yes. And the tender part to me is more important for the participatory reasons because if we just focused on the planting, that's only citizen participation twice a year. But the real opportunity as I see it is the tending part. Hey, let's go out there Let's do some tree pick care. Um, let's remove the soil from the from the buttress roots, and then remove the weeds, and aerate the soil so that this tree can flourish. Mm-hmm. And then a similar process with hey, let's go up, uh, look up the trunk, and see what limbs can be removed so that we can improve sight lines down the block, and so that um, there's a sense of grandeur as we walk down our our neighborhood uh, blocks, and you're not ducking. And, you, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, the, this tree looks more like a tree and less like a bush. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a real aesthetic value to that. And, you know, I even take care when it's trees that I quote unquote don't like, like the calorie pear, which is invasive. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, if I'm pruning that tree, I take just as much care as possible <laughs> and, and try to make it the most, the most beautiful calorie pear I can. Uh-huh. Ever since um, you sh- you know talked about all the trees on South Street and each individual one and where you cut a limb on all of them, one of the things I notice the most walking around the city now, as I'm looking at all the street trees, is noticing all the cut marks. You know, and like all the moments where someone um, was caring for it and making a decision and deciding that this was the best thing for the tree, for the community. For it was, it's just like. It feels like a really generous action and it's really cool. It's it's really cool as, as like a community member to be able to walk around and 
recognize that. It's totally changed for me personally, my relationship with the trees in the city. Yeah, I, th- I think um, one way I try to communicate this is when I'm doing cleanups with the community. And and one of the frustrations with cleaning up trash is that invariably next week, a lot of it returns. And then <laughs> a month later, is as though you weren't even there. However, if you prune a tree, till its pit, add some mulch, you've now affected the way that block looks for at least a matter of months and most likely years mm-hmm. for the for the for the better and if you're able to do three or four trees in a cluster you've really made a different a visible difference on the way a block looks and feels and it's such a human scale interaction and it's it's something that with a little training people can do so much more of this intellectual thought is not on the planting. It's on the continued care. Mm-hmm. Because what we want is that sapling to become a 30, 40, 50 foot uh, tree. Um, mm-hmm. it, and it's not going to happen if we just plant and then forget about it. It's all hands on deck. We are dealing with existential climate change, uh, incredible um, species collapse in North America and around the world. And we have to figure out ways to fix this. And and it's not just about putting up solar panels and windmills and only addressing the CO2 issue. We Mm -hmm. have to think about this in a holistic way that addresses every facet of our society. I think we have to get the Western mindset out of just thinking about terms and the world in terms of economics and religion Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and politics. Um, So what we need to have is a re re grounding to think of um, ourselves as part of like the planet earth that, you know, we're stewards. So like you pass on, pass it on in a healthier state than, than before. Join us next week to hear Marcus in conversation with artist Aviva Romani as they talk through their different approaches to restoration. It seems as though she's found ways to engage that I had never even contemplated. You know, stopping a pipeline by creating art, like, it's amazing. You and I are, I think, concerned with very similar ideas, but we approach them really differently. If you missed the interview with Aviva, you can go back and listen to it on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. You can learn more about the guests and follow their interactions on our website, chat.squarespace.com. Music for this episode is by Nick Millivoy, whose most recent album entitled Streets of Philadelphia includes 25 compositions inspired by and named for various streets around town. You can check out more of their work on our website. Again, that's chat. Dot squarespace.com. Thank you to the Center for Humanities at Temple University for hosting this podcast, and to Eric Carbonara at Not a Sound Studio for audio editing. This podcast is recorded in North Philadelphia on the ancestral lands of the Lenny Lenape people, whose presence and resilience in Pennsylvania continues to this day. Until next time, I'm Austin Camille. Thank you for listening to Our Shared Field. <laughs>